Now on Documentary on News Talk, a fast-paced dash through the history books focusing on the discoveries, inventions and successes attributed to Irish people. This is Extraordinary Era. Ireland, the Emerald Isle, the land of saints and scholars, where there are 40 shades of green, where the mountains of Morn sweep down to the sea and where the rivers dance all over the globe to the sounds of Thin Lizzy and Sinead O'Connor, Enya and the Chieftains, literary works like Dubliners, The Country Girls, Circle of Friends, Normal People and Dracula fill bookshop bookcases from Transylvania to Pennsylvania. This little country gave the world Guinness and Jameson and Bulmers and Baileys. Irish Nobel laureates, Olympians and Oscar winners shared the world stage with leprechauns, banshees and dear old St. Patrick. Yes, it is fair to say Ireland has given the world a lot to be thankful for. We Irish definitely punch above our weight in the fields of celebrity and acclaim. But in fact, Ireland has given more to the world than you might think. For every celebrated Irish figure known across the globe, there are lots more whose stories became hidden in the annals of history. People who played their part in making the world what it is today. These are their stories. The stories of those whose legacies are forgotten, but whose inventions, discoveries and accolades withstand. This is Extraordinary Era. So, Where to begin? Well, why not with what's underfoot? The geology and landscape of Ireland has always provided inspiration. This is episode one, Our Land. Did you know that Ireland is the birthplace of probably the most famous geologist the world has ever known? A man who not only is known as the father of modern seismology, but he also invented the word seismology. Do you know who that might be? It wouldn't happen to be you, would it? <laughs> it would indeed. It's me, Robert Mallet. Robert Mallet was born on Riders Row in Dublin City on the 3rd of June, 1810. A bouncing baby boy for his parents, John and Thomasina. Though he wasn't very academic at school, the young Robert had an aptitude for engineering and graduated from Trinity College at the age of 20. After that, he joined his father's foundry and machine shop making copper wire and plumbing paraphernalia. However, though engineering was the family trade, geology was Mallet's passion. And he was especially intrigued by earthquakes. He actually showed a real understanding of complex geological phenomena for someone with no formal training. It wasn't until 1849 that the scientific world really sat up and took notice of him because of some experiments he was conducting on Kalini Beach. Mallet wanted to examine the velocity of energy passing through various types of rock. So in order to simulate an earthquake, he buried kegs of gunpowder and detonated them, measuring the travel times of the shockwaves over a distance of half a mile. You can be sure these experiments also made the locals sit up and take notice. Good morning, Mrs. Noonan. May I please have half a pound of... Saints preserve us! What was that? Are we under attack? Oh, don't worry, Mrs. O'Leary. It's just that daft man blowing up the beach again. Uh, Mrs. Noonan, you wouldn't be calling him daft if you had known that these were the first controlled seismological experiments ever to be performed anywhere in the world. 
Mallet continued to develop his burgeoning science, and between 1850 and 1858, he presented four reports to the British Association for the Advancement of Science. But the occurrence that really put Mallet on the map happened on the 16th of December, 1857. At 10pm, the area of Basilicata in southern Italy was devastated by a very strong earthquake which killed 11,000 people. Mallet knew that studying the aftermath would benefit his new science, and so he travelled to Italy. I paid close attention to the collapsed buildings, noting the directions the chimneys fell and the orientation of cracks in walls. This helped me determine the spread of the seismic waves. I also hired a photographer to capture the devastation in the area. A bold move considering studio photography was in its infancy at the time and field photography was practically unheard of. When he returned to Ireland, he set about writing his two-volume work. The Great Neapolitan Earthquake of 1857. The First Principles of Seismology. The book wouldn't be published until 1862 due to the cost of printing the photographs, but when it did appear in bookshops... Oh, it was a blockbuster! So, I think it is fair to say that Robert Mallet made great shakes in the area of earthquakes. Did you get it? <clears throat> Moving swiftly on. Let's leave the rocks behind and head for pastures new. Literally, to the farm we go. Ireland has a long history of farming and managing the land. But on the 31st of December 1909, one of the world's greatest farming heroes was looking at the ground from the air. Up, up and away! Harry Ferguson, the 25-year-old mechanic from Growl, County Down, was the first Irishman to fly. Not only did he build his own aircraft, the Ferguson monoplane, but he flew 165 feet across Hillsborough Park after towing his aircraft through the streets of Belfast. What in God's name is that? Who's inside that aeroplane? Sure you know yourself, it's the Mad Mechanic. Yes. Harry had gotten the nickname the Mad Mechanic when he used to race motorbikes through the streets of Belfast in order to advertise his brother's garage. It was actually a falling out with this brother over safety concerns of his aeroplane that prompted Harry to open his own business, May Street Motors, which sold cars and more importantly for this story, tractors. At the height of the First World War, Harry noticed the strains being put on farming because of the loss of manpower. At this time, equipment that should have been attached to horses or oxen were haphazardly being fitted to machinery, making farm work very dangerous. Harry took this opportunity to flex his mechanical and engineering muscles, and in 1917, he invented the Belfast Plough. This plough could be attached rigidly to a Model T car for ease and power. This began Harry's journey of modifying the implements of farming. He continued with his developments, but his biggest breakthrough came in 1926 with the invention of his three-point linkage system, making it easier to farm large tracts of land. As well as the original plough, Ferguson developed a whole range of implements that could be attached to his range of tractors. 
By the 1940s, other farming manufacturers followed suit by creating their own versions of Ferguson's inventions. And it remains the standard linkage system today. Now, let's leave the mad mechanic behind and put someone else in the driver's seat. February 13, 1966. The American TV show What's My Line was welcoming a guest to be interviewed by a celebrity panel. Ginger Rogers and Arlene Francis, among others, posed yes or no questions to a guest to try and find out their line of work. A tall, elegant woman with a blonde coiffed beehive and an ostrich feathered trimmed suit wrote her name on the blackboard for the benefit of the television audience. Rosemary Smith. When asked where she was from, she replied, Dublin, in Ireland, and received a warm round of applause from the audience. Throughout their questioning, the panel fixated on Rosemary's beauty and poise. One panellist going as far as to ask her, Miss Smith, have you anything whatsoever to do with show business, and if not, why not? After numerous rounds of questions, it was deduced, much to the shock of the panel, that Rosemary was a race car driver. Rosemary had come from a motoring family and had learned to drive from the age of 11. She left school at 15 and became a dress designer, opening a fashion business with her mother. But soon thereafter, she broke into the world of motor racing, first as a co-driver, but after discovering she didn't like navigating, switched to driving. In 1964, she won the Women's Prize at the Circuit of Ireland Rally, and the year after, she won the Tulip Rally in the Netherlands outright. She remains today the only woman to win this prestigious race. In the same year, she was named the Texaco Sports Star of the Year. Rosemary continued on her winning streak throughout the 1960s until her career took her to Daytona Beach in Florida to race with her team. After a wonderfully successful career as Ireland's first lady of driving, she went on to open the Rosemary Smith Driving School in Dublin. And in 2017, at the age of 79, Rosemary was invited by Renault to do a test drive in Marseille. On the track, she reached speeds of 160 kilometers per hour and also became the oldest person in the world ever to drive a Formula One car. Time to hitch a ride back to Dublin in the 1950s. But it isn't the smell of fuel that greets us where we're headed. Instead, a feast for the senses awaits. In 1954, Tato, the famous Irish crisp brand, was established in O'Rahilly Parade off Moore Street in Dublin city centre. It was the brainchild of entrepreneur Joe Spud Murphy, who started the business with one van and eight employees. <coughs> Excuse me? Yes, can I help you? My name is William Kitchener, and the recipe for the crisp first appeared in my 1817 book, The Cook's Oracle. Peel large potatoes, Cut them into shavings round and round, dry them well in a clean cloth, and fry them in lard. Yes, Mr. Kitchener. We are not trying to discredit you as the inventor of the crisp. However, Tato, and more so the people who worked for Tato, revolutionised the humble crisp. And how, sir, did they do this? They added flavour. Well, I say... Back in the 1950s, star crisps in their blue bag with their purple sachet of salt were being munched on across the country. However, Tato's Joe Spud Murphy and his colleague, Sligo native Seamus Burke, wanted to take crisps to the next level. 
Not long into his working life at Tato, Joe set Seamus the task of inventing a flavouring for their crisps. Sitting at a kitchen table in the factory, he worked through trial and error to develop Tato's first flavoured crisp. Mussels and spinach? No. Liver and turnip? No, Mr Kitchener. Cheese and onion. Mmm, sounds delicious. This was swiftly followed by salt and vinegar, and thereafter, crisp companies from all around the world were begging to get their hands on Tato's secret method. Of course, we know that Tato has gone on from success to success all over the world, but much of that is due to the flavour sensation created by Seamus Burke. And today, he is remembered fondly with a blue plaque in his hometown of Clunacool, County Sligo. Because we, as Irish people, are perched here upon an island, it stands to reason that many of the people throughout history have spent a lot of their time trying to get off the island. With Ireland's maritime traditions and histories, as well as the rough Atlantic Ocean to the west, is it any wonder that Irish people have made such intrepid explorers? You may have heard of Brendan the Navigator, Ernest Shackleton or Tom Crean, but what about those who are less well-known? My name is Daniel Houghton, born in County Tyrone in 1740, and I'm one of the earliest Europeans to travel to the centre of West Africa in the hopes of finding Timbuktu. I'm Christopher Costigan, born in 1810, and I was the first European explorer of the Jordan River and Dead Sea. And my name is Henry Bloss Lynch, born in Ballinrobe in 1807, and I conducted the first navigation of the River Tigris from the Persian Gulf to Baghdad. Wow, gentlemen. Nice to meet you. So, three intrepid explorers. Where to start? How about you, Mr. Houghton? You said something about Timbuktu? Yes. I wanted to be the first person to find Timbuktu. But when you were alive in the 18th century, wasn't Timbuktu a huge African centre of trade? And also home to the University of Timbuktu since the 12th century? Yes and I wanted to be the first person to discover it. Okay, I'm having an issue with the word discover, but do tell us more. I had a distinguished career as a major in the British Army, and I had taken up a diplomatic post on the island of Goree, off the coast of West Africa, and it was during my four years there that I learned Arabic. To us explorers, Timbuktu was known as African El Dorado, so obviously, it became the prize which all European explorers desired, and the race to find it began. In 1790, I approached the African Association in London, proposing an expedition up the Gambia River, as far as Barracunda Falls, and then overland onto the fabled city of Timbuktu. And so my crew and I sailed up the Gambia River, mapping the territory along the way. However, Houghton's expedition started to run into troubles in 1791. In the March of that year, the town of Medina, where he was staying, burnt down, destroying a lot of his possessions. The mission was hampered even further by the outbreak of war between two rival kingdoms, and by May, his efforts were stalled even further by storms and theft. His last communication was in September 1791. Two years later, reports finally arrived in London, confirming that Houghton had died in Africa. As the circumstances were pieced together, it appears that Houghton had decided to travel through the desert. But two days into the Sahara, he feared that his travelling companions intended to kill him. 
he turned around back south alone and without any food or water and made it to a watering hole called Tara. The natives who camped there refused him any sustenance and Houghton died of starvation. Still, it should be noted that the African Association in London said that before my untimely death that I'd passed the former limits of European discovery. A very fine accolade indeed for the man from Tyrone. I had a similar situation. Ah, Mr. Costigan. Father Costigan, if you don't mind. Father Costigan, do tell. I became fascinated with the geography of the Holy Land while studying for the priesthood. And so in 1835, I made my way to Beirut. There, I secured a boat and a Maltese sailor to be my crewmate. I made my way overland to the Sea of Galilee, where my aim was to navigate my way down the River Jordan to the Dead Sea. Your aim? Yes. I suppose my journey was hampered because of my lack of sailing knowledge, and also because I started my expedition in August, the dry season which made the river virtually unnavigable. After eight days, my mate abandoned the expedition and I instead travelled the rest of the journey on foot. By the time I arrived at the Dead Sea, I was was very ill from dehydration. While being taken to a monastery in Jerusalem, Christopher Costigan died and was buried at Mount Zion. However, he is still remembered today as the first modern European explorer of the River Jordan and the Dead Sea and is memorialized at Cape Costigan, the northernmost tip of the Lisan Peninsula. Let's hear now about a more successful mission, shall we? Ah, Mr. Henry Bloss Lynch, tell us your story. I was born in Ballam Robe. Yes, it's true. But by the age of 16, I had become a midshipman in the Indian Navy. And by 27, I was appointed second in command to Colonel Chesney on an expedition to explore the Euphrates route to India. By 30, I was commanding an expedition to ascend the Tigris to Baghdad, a feat of navigation never before accomplished. By 1839, Henry, along with his brother, had finished surveying the River Tigris. The brothers from County Mayo then brought three more steamer ships around the Cape of Good Hope to create a fleet in Baghdad, and from there they set up a steamer service to India and a postal service to Damascus along the river that they had navigated. Now, that really is something to write home about. But what about me? Oh, I'm sorry. Who are you? I don't have you on my list. My name is Hans Sloan. And, Mr. Sloan, did you navigate a new land or discover a country or something? I discovered something much more impressive than that. I discovered chocolate milk. Hallelujah! Now this, I've got to hear. I was born on the 16th of April, 1660, at Killalee in County Down. In 1687, I became a fellow of the College of Physicians. And the same year, I went to Jamaica aboard HMS Assistance as personal physician to the new governor of Jamaica. While there, I noted that the locals drank cocoa mixed with water. But when I tried it, I found it most nauseating. So, I devised my own recipe for mixing chocolate with milk. By the 1750s, a Soho grocer was selling my recipe as a medicinal elixir, making Sir Hans Sloan's Milk Chocolate the first brand-name milk chocolate drink. And by the 19th century, the Cadbury brothers sold tins of drinking chocolate whose trade cards also invoked my recipe. What a sweet story to take us into our first break. 
So far we've had navigators, agricultural innovators, rally drivers, food scientists and geologists. And we're only halfway through. Join us after the break for more stories of inventions, discoveries and firsts from Extraordinary Era. Welcome back to Extraordinary Era. Before the break, we met some intrepid explorers who left our homeland on voyages of discovery. But, looking at Irish history, most people left our shores out of necessity. Emigration still takes our Irish brothers and sisters across the waves today, and some who have left have made waves of their own all over the globe. Work as hard as you can, make as much money as you can, share what you have with the desperate, and then get the hell out of Dodge when the money dries up. These are the words of the formidable Nellie Cashman. Born in Middleton, County Cork in 1845, Nellie went on to build quite a life and legacy for herself in the US and is remembered in Western lore as a helper, a healer, a saviour and a gold prospector. My mother and my sister and I left Ireland in 1850. We first settled in Boston, and when I was 20, we moved to San Francisco. You see, the Homestead Act had encouraged people to move west. It promised up to 160 acres of land for those who make the trip. I always loved adventure. I just had that kind of spirit, and I was thrilled by all the stories of the gold rush. So I decided to make the move to become a prospector myself. Once I got to a town, I would start digging, and before the mine dried up, I would move on to the next town. That would be my life for the rest of my years. Nellie was always known as an entrepreneurial businesswoman, setting up boarding houses and restaurants in all the towns she lived in. But, moreover, she was known as a woman with the kindest heart, donating money to charitable organisations and looking after the sick and destitute of the mining communities on her travels. She was known throughout the Midwest as the Miner's Angel, but the next step in her story is how she came to be known as the Angel of Cassiers. In 1874, I moved to the centre of the Gold Rush, the Yukon Valley in Canada. I set up a boarding house in the Cassier Mountains and began digging for gold myself. One day, news got to us that there was some miners, sick with scurvy, trapped in a snowstorm up on one of the mountain peaks. I quickly rallied together a search party, gathered all the food, supplies, and vitamin C I could, and set out to rescue the men. The Canadian Army officers begged me to turn back, but I informed them I would be persevering, with or without their support. They knew better than to stand in the way of Nellie Cashman. After over 70 days in the freezing temperatures, Nellie and her team finally found the miners, 77 men in all. She nursed them back to health, and the only thanks she wanted from those saved souls was for them to make a charitable donation to the Sisters of St. Joseph so that they could establish a hospital in Victoria. At the turn of the year in 1925, Nellie contracted pneumonia and rheumatism. She was admitted to and spent the remainder of her days near Victoria, British Columbia, in the very hospital she had helped raise funds for a half a century earlier. Cashman died on January 4th, 1925, but her legacy has not been forgotten. Another woman who would go down in history as a carer who left Ireland to make a name for herself 
was Margareta Agar. Margareta was born in Limerick in 1863. She was one of 11 children, and as a teen she trained as a nurse in Belfast. She subsequently went on to become a matron of an orphanage for a number of years. While in Belfast, she made friends with Emily Locke, a lady-in-waiting to Princess Helena, the daughter of Queen Victoria. Princess Helena was also the aunt of Alexandra Fedorovna, Tsarina of Russia. While on a tour of Russia in the winter of 1897, Emily Locke discovered the royal family were in need of a governess, and Margareta Agar's name was put forward. In 1898, Margareta travelled from Belfast to Russia to take charge of the Russian princesses Olga and Tatiana. Princesses Maria and Anastasia would be born in the years that followed. Not only did Margareta look after the day-to-day -day needs of the princesses, she also nursed them through various childhood illnesses, including typhoid. She also taught them to speak English. And it was said that the royal children even spoke with a slight Limerick accent. This accent was later corrected by their tutor, Charles Sidney Gibbs. Your Royal Highnesses, repeat after me. Little Boy Blue, come blow your horn. Little Boy Blue, come blow your horn. No, Boy. 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 Margareta quit her post in 1904, citing personal reasons. On returning to London, gossip and rumours started to percolate about a nurse who was a spy in the Russian court. Margareta wrote to the Times to dispel any consideration against her good name. I now write as I am the only nurse who has recently left Russia to emphatically deny the truth of the story. I left Russia last October, so far from being dismissed, I received from the Empress a handsome money present and a pension for my life was settled upon me. At Christmas, I was the recipient of letters and cards and a gift from the Empress and Imperial children. This letter helped to clear her name and prompted Margareta to write her memoirs six years in the Russian court. Margareta went on to open a boarding house in London in 1908 but still stayed close to the Imperial family. It would be no surprise that she was devastated to learn about their demise at the hands of the Bolsheviks in 1918. Thereafter, Margareta lived a quiet life, except for one notable moment. In the 1920s, Margareta was called to testify at the trial of Anna Anderson, Miss Unknown, the German woman who claimed to be the Grand Duchess Anastasia. The case remains one of the most notorious imposter cases the world has known. Another Irish woman who had connections to Russia, or the Ballet Russe to be more precise, was the dancer, teacher and choreographer Nanette de Valois, who was regarded as the godmother of English and Irish ballet. On the 6th of June 1898, a baby girl was born at Baltiboy's house near Blessington County Wicklow. She was named Idris Stannis. I was a delicate, undersized child, intensely reserved and stubborn as a mule. At the time, our location in Wicklow ensured we were quite removed from public life. The only trips we made were to Sunday service and the occasional trip to Dublin to the theatre. But I always found it easy to make my own fun. 
I remember my first public performance. I remember our cook, Kate, singled me out and taught me to execute an authentic Irish jig on the stone floor of the kitchen. Come on, Miss Idris, point your toe, arms by our side and follow me. A diddly idle deedledum. <laughs> That's it. We'll make you a dancer yet. <laughs> I felt so inspired. Inspired. The ability to express myself through movement at such a young age. All because Kate showed me the steps. If she had not done so, I might never have become a dancer. Her passion for dance was fortified further when her mother took her to the Gaiety Theatre to see the pantomime Sleeping Beauty. After the family moved to London in 1905, the now seven-year-old was eager to begin dance classes. And by 13, she had changed her name to Nanette de Valois and had made her professional debut at another pantomime, this time at the Lyceum Theatre in London's West End. In 1923, de Valois joined the Ballet Russe, the most renowned ballet company founded by Sergei de Agliev, and toured Europe as a soloist for four years. De Valois then went on to set up her own dance academies at home and abroad. In 1927, she began a relationship with the Old Vic Theatre in London, teaching the actors movement. She also split her time between Cambridge and Dublin, where she set up the Abbey Theatre School of Ballet at the invitation of W.B. Yeats. In 1931, she moved her London Ballet School to the newly reopened Sadler's Wells Theatre, under the new name, the Sadler's Wells Ballet School. She also formed a ballet company with six dancers, including herself, called the Vic Wells Ballet. As her company grew, she stepped back from the limelight, allowing new dancers to rise through the ranks, none more famous than the prima ballerina, Margot Fontaine. The Vic Wells Ballet received a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth II in 1956 and became the Royal Ballet. De Valois ensured there was a constant supply of stars to her company and most sensationally brought Rudolf Nureyev to dance with Fontaine. She also offered a contract to Nicholas Sergeyev, the Russian choreographer who, when he fled Russia, brought with him a trunk full of ballet scores which had never been heard in the West. Among the scores he brought were the works of Tchaikovsky and de Valois mounted productions of Swan Lake and The Nutcracker. However, their most famous production together was The Sleeping Beauty, which opened the Royal Opera House in 1946. A touching reminder of the pantomime de Valois watched as a child at the Gaiety Theatre many years before. Of course, it should be no wonder that an Irish woman changed the face of world dance. Traditional Irish dance, along with other athletic pursuits, have been a huge part of our history. Take, for example, all the sports that grew and developed in Ireland. Hurling and football. Gaelic football. And handball. Don't forget handball. Handball? Is that Irish? Oh, indeed it is. No, I'm not talking about the sports we all know are Irish. What would you say if I told you I was talking about croquet? No way. Yes, indeed. It is fairly widely accepted that croquet, although sounding très français, was actually developed in Ireland. The origins of the game are obscure, and though the game may have similarities to the French beach game Pal Mal, there are many written testimonies to bolster the claim that croquet in its current form was played in Ireland as far back as the 1830s, 
Records show that it was played at Greenmount, near Castle Bellingham, County Louth, about 1834. And in Galway, it was played at the Bishop of Toome's Palace. And an 1864 article from the reader says, It was a positive fact that in the year 1834, 1835, the game was played in Kingstown, near Dublin, under the name of Croquet, with implements similar to those now used. And the noted croquet historian Dr. Pryor said in his book of 1872, One thing only is certain. It is from Ireland that croquet came to England, and it was on the lawn of the late Lord Lonsdale that it was first played. The first Irish croquet championship is recorded from 1871. And it was played again in 1873 and 1874 before seemingly lapsing. The oldest existing club in Ireland is the Rushbrook Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, founded in 1882. Which neatly brings me on to my next sporting club. And this club is the oldest of its kind anywhere in the world. And that is the Royal Cork Yacht Club. Let's first go back to the 1600s in the Netherlands. It was here, on the many Dutch waterways, that the idea of sailing for pleasure became fashionable. During this time, King Charles II of England was exiled in the Netherlands, and he too became a fan of this new pastime. In 1660, King Charles was returned from exile, and he had been gifted a yacht by the Dutch, which he sailed enthusiastically up and down the Thames. Excuse me, isn't this called Extraordinary Era? Not brilliantly British or dumbfoundingly Dutch. Sorry. Okay, so the sixth Lord of Inchiquin, Murrah O'Brien. A fine Cork name. He had been at the court of King Charles II at this time, and he was made first Earl Inchiquin. When he returned to Cork, yachting in Cork Harbour soon started to become popular. Yachts were all the rage. Flash forward 75 years and his great-grandson William O'Brien, now the ninth Lord Inchiquin, along with five of his friends decided to formalise and set up the Water Club of the Harbour of Cork, which in turn has become the Royal Cork Yacht Club. See, we have a lot of history with many sports, not just the three Gaelic sports we recognise today. We even had our own series of sporting and cultural events known as the Talchin Games. The place, Ireland. The time, pre-Christian times. The Talchin Games. Games of mental and physical ability. The long jump, the high jump, running, hurling, spear throwing, boxing, sword fighting, archery, wrestling, swimming, chariot and horse racing, competitions in strategy, singing, dancing and storytelling, and the strangest of all the games, a mass arranged marriage. I beg your pardon? Yes. This strange tradition saw couples meet for the first time on their wedding day and were given up to a year and a day to divorce on the hills of separation. Sources say that the Talchin Games were a precursor to and possibly the inspiration for the ancient Olympic Games and maybe also the inspiration for the TV show Married at First Sight.
These sporting firsts are only a fraction of the wide variety of games originating in Ireland, including cycle polo, which was invented by an Irish cyclist, Richard J. McCready, in County Wicklow in 1891. The steeplechase, which was first run over a distance of four miles in County Cork in 1752. And of course, our very own Irish martial art, Botherucht, Irish stick fighting. This martial art probably developed as far back as the Bronze Age as a way of settling disputes and was popularised in the 17th and 18th centuries by warring factions at public gatherings such as fairs and weddings. And though it fell into decline, as other sports such as hurling became more popular, there is a revival happening and a resurgence in practitioners of this ancient sport, especially in North America. Now, from stick fighting at fairs and weddings to horse whipping in the streets of Chicago. In the newspaper, The World's News, on the 27th of May 1905, an article was printed. It told the story of an Irish actress, Mae Belfort, and her military lover. I can no longer withstand the oft-repeated denials of General Bullion that he had paid court to me. He has said he merely knew me as an acquaintance, nothing more. I feel that in justice to myself, I should take this step to disabuse the public mind of any erroneous impression the attentions of General Vullion may have caused. It is true, I horsewhipped General Vullion publicly in Chicago after he had made it plain that he had no serious intentions toward me. Indeed, upon that occasion, I carried with me a loaded revolver with which I intended to kill him. But I did not use the pistol because, at the last moment, I concluded that death was too good for the man. So, I horsewhipped him. I am a woman of sudden impulses, and there is no telling what a woman scorned will do. To understand the gravity and hysteria caused by this tabloid scandal, we need to go back a decade to the music halls of Montmartre in Paris. During this time, no one was hotter and more salacious than 23-year-old May Belfort. Very little is known about the early life of May, other than the fact that she was born in Ireland in 1872. She travelled to London and became a star of the music hall circuit, and then onwards to Paris where she delighted audiences across the city singing dirty nursery rhymes laced with double entendres while dressed in an oversized baby's bonnet while holding a black cat. I guess that was entertainment back in the 1890s. She was the muse of the painter Toulouse-Lautrec, whose saucy paintings of can-can dancers and the nightlife surrounding the Moulin Rouge evoked the hedonism of the time. Unfortunately, love would cause May's downfall. May met and fell in love with the Boer War general Ben Villeneuve, and the couple were engaged to be married. At the time, Villeneuve was already married to someone in South Africa, but he promised May that he was arranging a divorce. But it wasn't long until he called off their engagement, moved to America where he did obtain a divorce and subsequently married someone else. May did not take this lightly and followed the love cheat to Chicago, where the reported horsewhipping occurred. May also gave the reporter stacks of love letters between the couple which confirmed Villeneuve's betrayal, all of which were published in full. A disappointing fall from grace for a woman who was once the toast of Europe. Her obituary on the 31st of March 1929 reads 
Her last stage appearance was with the community players as Mrs. Malaprop in The Rivals. Although she had lost her youth and most of her beauty, her performance was pronounced by critics to have been one of the best seen in the city. To this day, Toulouse-Lautrec's artworks of Belfort can still be admired in galleries all over the world. So, from an Irish woman on the stage to some Irish men behind the camera. Enter Herbert Brennan. I was born in Dunleary on the 13th of January 1880. At the age of 16, I moved away from my family to begin a life in America. In my early 20s, I had a career on the stage and performed on the vaudeville circuit with my wife, Helen. But as I neared the age of 30, my stage career had begun to falter. Little did I know, my biggest turn would be right around the corner. By 1909, I had become a scriptwriter for the Independent Moving Pictures Company, and then in 1911, I directed my first picture. But my 1914 movie, Neptune's Daughter, that really put me on the map. I went to work for different studios, including Fox, but I think it is widely accepted that my finest work was made at Paramount. In the years that followed, Brennan would make his most successful works. The 1926 war film, Beau Geste, and the family drama, Sorrel and Son, for which he was nominated as Best Director at the first Academy Awards in 1927. Another Dubliner who went on to make a name for himself in the silent movie industry was born in Rathmines on the 15th of January 1892. And he was named Reginald Ingram Montgomery Hitchcock. But you can call me Rex Ingram. By the age of 19, I emigrated to the US of A and began to study sculpture at Yale University School of Art. My mother had died recently before this time, and I needed to get away from Ireland. It was at university that I met a chap called Charles Edison. Yes, the son of the famous Edison. Charles convinced me to get into pictures and so I began working in the art department in the Edison Company. It wasn't long until I began script writing and I even appeared in a few pictures for Vitagraph and Fox. That is when I decided to change my name to honor my dear mother, Rex Ingram. It had a ring to it, didn't it? It was in 1916 I was hired to direct my first picture for Universal. I didn't last long at that studio, didn't see eye to eye with the bosses. But it was in 1929 I got my biggest break. I was hired by Metro Studios for $600 a week. It was at Metro, and with the great cameraman John Seitz, that I made my best work. I'm probably best known for my movie The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which cost the studio $1 million and made a star out of a then-unknown Italian by the name of Rudolph Valentino. Ingram went on to direct many more blockbusters for Metro, including Scaramouche and The Prisoner of Zenda. But as Ingram's star began to rise, it would be his temperament which would be his downfall. He was argumentative and stubborn. He just couldn't stop picking fights, most notably with Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM. That Rex Ingram hated me. I respected the man as a director, but he couldn't stand me. Even when I offered him to direct the studio's new mega-budget biblical blockbuster, Ben-Hur. Rex continued making movies in France and North Africa, and received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But with the dawn of the talkies, Ingram lost interest and brought his cinema career to an end in 1932. 
But if Brennan and Ingram were famous, there was another Irish Hollywood director who was infamous. William Cunningham Dean Tanner was born in Carlowtown on the 26th of April 1872. As a young man, he studied in Ireland and England. However, it was his equestrian training which would encourage him to emigrate. He moved to Kansas to work on a dude ranch in 1889. He eventually ended up with a theatrical touring company in 1895. By 1912, he had arrived in California and had changed his name to William Desmond Taylor. He began acting in films, mainly westerns, his experience on horseback proving invaluable. But after just a few years in front of the camera, he turned his attention to directing. He is still to this date Ireland's most prolific movie director. But Taylor's infamy is not due to this accolade. On the morning of February 2nd, 1922, William's manservant Henry Peavy found the 49-year-old shot in the back at his Westlake home. Though there were many suspects and motives, the homicide remains a cold case and one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in American modern history. So, there we have it. A whole host of Irish people who have made impressions on the world. From those who revolutionised working in fields, to those who raced on roads. From those who mined underground, to those who carved a name for themselves in Hollywoodland. These people may have stayed here or played here, or they may have travelled afar. But no matter where their stories took place, they always brought with them the stories of our land. The stories of Ireland. Extraordinary Era was written and narrated by Donegal O'Dea, produced and edited by Amy O'Dwyer and voiced by Ashling Breen, Anthony Kinnahan, Margaret McAuliffe, Steve Murray, Kieran O'Grady, David O'Mara and Deborah Wiseman. Extraordinary Era is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.